Quantified Health Wellness and Aging Podcast. A podcast about the latest products and services, technologies and people pushing forward a new frontier. Bi-monthly Lee S. Dreiber hosts a pioneer for an in-depth discussion. And now over to the show. Hello and welcome to episode number 20 with Polina Mamashina. Dr. Polina Mamashina is a Chief Scientist and Chief Operating Officer at Deep Longevity. She received her Doctor in Philosophy degree from the Computer Science Department of the University of Oxford. She was leading the Applied Artificial Intelligence and Biomarker Discovery as a Head of Biomarker Development in Silico Medicine. And Silico Medicine spun off a new company dedicated to biomarker development, Deep Longevity. Dr. Mamashina is leading the research and operations at Deep Longevity. Her expertise includes algorithm design, machine learning, and bioinformatics. She has published over 20 peer-reviewed publications in the area of longevity and machine learning. And first author of seminal papers on deep-learned biomarkers of aging, co-author of Biomarkers of Human Aging book, Springer 2020, she is a member of the editorial boards of the Frontiers in Genetics of Aging and Frontiers in the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Her current age index, 15, as calculated by Google Scholar. Hello and welcome to the, the show, Paulina. Hi, Lee. It's, it's my pleasure to be here. So first of all, where are you? Well, I'm currently in Moscow, uh, in, in Russia. So back to, to my home, home, hometown. I didn't realize that. For some reason, I thought you were uh, in London. Uh, no, I was living in the UK for three years um, when I was getting my degree from Oxford. But uh, I left, like I believe, in August yeah, last year. It might sound be off topic, but I was wondering what's the coronavirus situation in Russia? I mean, it's a bit hard to comment. So, like all of my friends and my colleagues, we kind of self isolated ourselves. So, we're trying, you know, to go out. If we want to go to the office, we do this quite rarely, but the cases are growing, even like from official stats. And yeah, I mean, it's even worse than it was in, in May in terms of numbers. So we'll see how it goes. Okay. And are, people are not wearing masks and things uh, in shopping? From uh, No, actually, they, they were, I mean, in Moscow. So it's not like I can tell for the whole country because when Russia is obviously so big, it's a bit hard to know what's going on out there. But um, in Moscow, they are wearing and uh, there are actually some shops or um, uh, coffee shops even being closed if people were not wearing masks. I'm not talking about stuff. So it's actually, I mean, the, the, the government is trying to control it as much as possible. But of course, people are skeptical. But at least we don't have any protests, you know, against <laughs> coronavirus. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Okay, that is really interesting to hear because, again, it conflicts with other things I've heard. So it's just amazing how how different sources give you different information. I'm right. being really curious about Moscow because of this level of conflict and information. So you were uh, you mentioned that you were uh, you studied Oxford uh, computer science, right? Yes. And what were you what were you doing the computer science front? Yeah, I was a part of a computational uh, biology group 
um, that is headed by Blanca Rodriguez. She's a professor at Oxford. And uh, so I, I, I did uh, my PhD in, 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 in computer science by developing uh, biomarkers of dr drug responses. Biomarkers of drug responses, that's quite specific. Right, yeah, I was predicting, I mean, it's even, was even more specific. So what was I was doing, I was predicting the safety. I mean, I was building models that can predict uh, whether this drug is going to cause um, any sort of cardiovascular complications in humans. And I was doing this for all, all number of drugs, um, those that been approved, those being actually withdrawn, uh, especially due to cardiac toxicity. Um, so yeah, I mean, that was the, the, the main theme of the, of the, of my thesis. And was that something that you were interested in before you went, uh, before you applied for that PhD or did that just come, come along by accident? Uh, I was always interested in computational models. So I'm, let's say, geneticist by training. Of course, I was trained as a bioinformatician, but apparently bioinformatics and computational biology surprisingly are completely two different things <laughs> and uh, so yeah i was trained as a bioinformatician but i was always interested in machine learning and or advanced stats and so on and um so when i was applying for for my phd that what i was wrote in my proposal that i was like i would like to to create some models um machine learning based models that can predict uh, drug responses or uh, somehow quantify the, 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 the wellness of individuals. And so it was pretty much aligned with what I was doing at when I was part of Silica and what I'm doing right now with, with Deep Longevity. And so why, why, why were you interested in machine learning? What was it that sparked your interest? Well, it's actually fascinated me because... When I started working with data as a bioinformatician, and I was mainly working with uh, next-generation next sequencing data, so-called so NGS, um, I was working with a really large number of samples. And it was so hard to analyze them, but even like being trained as a geneticist, it's not like I can actually... Um, was it's not like I was able to, to make any sense of the data, or, I mean, not any sense, but... To understand it fully and i was always looking for, for some tools that you know help me to visualize it uh, to visualize the data help me to uh, analyze it in, in some way and machine learning is just perfect for it so it, it, like we have if we think of like a genome we have twenty-eight thousand genes there it's all like you can understand and know them by name all of them it's it's impossible for for human intelligence so i believe that machine learning is just you know power, powerful tools that can help us enable us uh, analyzing the data in in the right way yeah so you you discovered it as a powerful tool you recognized the power in it and you were able to start wielding that power so you i guess you felt like a magician acting upon the data Right, exactly. I mean, I'm still feeling that. Even, I mean, when I was start, starting, like, actually programming, I was, I was rather young at that. I was at school. I was always feeling really empowered with, 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 the, with, with the code I was writing. 
actually my my first um my first programs they would always start with with like welcoming me as a like a, a creator or a master or so on um i think it's really cool when you can actually make machine do something for you i mean it's rather empowering the world is going to have to watch for you polina you're going to you're <laughs> going to take over it one day you and alan yeah. musk and neuralink <laughs> Yeah, I mean, no, I'm not going to be with another SkyMate or something if you're talking about this. You'll be controlling pigs with machine learning next. <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure I will do that. <laughs> okay, I better stop joking around here. So um, I, what I want to know is uh, how you ended up uh, with uh, in silico and now uh, the, the spin-out deep, deep longevity. I think you mentioned somewhere you were second year university. I guess second year, I don't know, was that Oxford and you were attended a hackathon or something along those lines? Right. So, um, I, I mean, I did my, my, I got my first degree from Moscow State University, uh, as I said, in genetics. And then I was always, you know, trying to work. So I started, I joined a lab in when I was in the second year of my degree. And then I was constantly looking for some positions. So I was at some point working like in two or three labs. And then um, I saw that, I mean, I was always interested in, in bioinformatics. And in my lab, that was my main lab that I did my um uh, coursework with uh, it's not like they were actually focused on, uh, on bioinformatics they had data but they had no one to analyze it so I was the one who was doing this so I was basically doing all like a major part of the digging and understanding how it works by myself and I enjoy it a lot but um, then I saw this um, hackathon in bioinformatics so uh, like a competition uh, for eight hours uh, recording non-stop for 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 bioinformaticians to, to solve some problems. So I thought, well, I mean, why not? I really want to join the community. I was feeling that I was a bit of a cyber community. And I said, yeah, it would be great to attend it. So I went there and um, apparently this um, hackathon was organized by Insilica Medicine. So the company that's focused on uh, applying machine learning um, to drug discovery mainly but at a point when uh, they were organizing Hackathon, they were also focused on biomarker development and, you know, just basic data analysis in biology. Um, so, and they offered me a position. So after, after, after the Hackathon. Uh, so I thought, I mean, that's great. It's really great to find such a company in Russia in bioinformatics. So, you know, it's like, a, it's a dream job. So I was... I started as a junior scientist and then uh, I ended up uh, to be a head of biomarker development when Silicon decided to, you know, to, to, to separate the biomarker business, to, to split, let's say, companies, I mean, not split companies, but spin off deep longevity. So, I, of course, it was only natural with me being from the beginning with the company and uh, leading the biomarker team to actually join deep longevity and deep elite deep longevity, so that's 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 how I got here. And how so that was a a hackathon when you were second year in Moscow. Yeah, I, I was I was already fourth. Uh, I, I was finishing my university, so yeah, it was in Moscow. Yeah. 
Oh, so do you mind me asking what age you were then? Um, I think I was, I mean, yeah, so it was, yeah, I was 22 or 21. Wow, like yeah, that. that's, that's quite young. And was that the first time you came across biomarkers? I mean, no, not as a term, but um, no, 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 it's a term. I knew it for me because biomarker in general is such a broad term. You can call almost anything a biomarker. I mean, I mean, something that kind of reflects a state or pathologic, I mean, disease state or pathological state in the human body. So albumin levels, uh, those are also biomarkers. But that was a, probably the first time when I uh, encountered uh, new types of uh, machine learning models. Because machine learning in general is just, you know, it's statistics. So I was applying some of the things in my university when I was visualizing data and doing the data analysis. Uh, but only when I uh, attended Hackathon, I kind of learned of other models and, and so on. Well, thank you very much, uh, Polina, for that uh, personal introduction and, and let me ask. I'm going to read, um, I just looked at uh, the description of deep longevity on LinkedIn. Uh, just, just let me read it out. Deep longevity is developing explainable artificial intelligence systems to track the rate of aging at the molecular, cellular, tissue organ, system, physiological, and psychological levels. It is also developing systems for the emerging field of longevity medicine, enabling physicians to make better decisions on interventions that may slow down or reverse the aging process. Deep Longevity has developed longevity as a service solution to integrate multiple deep biomarkers of aging dubbed, quote, aging clocks, to provide a universal multifactorial measure of human biological age. And here it says, originally incubated by in silico medicine, Deep Longevity started its independent journey in 2020 after securing a round of funding from the most credible venture capitalists specializing in biotechnology, longevity, and artificial intelligence. Deep Longevity established a research partnership with one of the most prominent longevity organizations, Human Longevity Incorporated, to provide a range of aging clocks to the network of advanced physicians and researchers. So I think having that is some kind of at least company introduction. The other thing I should mention is Deep Longevity only recently came out with Stealth and then had this major partnership with Human Longevity Incorporated. And then just very recently, 2nd of September, um, they were fully acquired by Regent Pacific Group. So. It was quite a, a quick set of announcements after coming out with Stealth. Yeah, we've been in Stealth for a year at that point. And as I said, because it was a part of the silica, the technology was already matured. So one of the assets that we have is um, this Young AI app. So we've been building it for several years. And now it's a part of Deep Longevity. So I guess that was the main reason why we were able you know, to secure those deals pretty fast I think what we should do for listeners and I do hope to have the CEO um, of uh, Alex who, who's agreed to be on um, in the near future but could you provide just a, a, a basic introduction to Deep Longevity right so as, as you said Deep Longevity it's a company that focused on developing uh, aging clocks 
So those tools that can predict a rate of biological aging um, of individuals and so uh, predict mortality, their life expectancy, and so on and so forth. And the main idea that um, with those tools, we can actually, yes, again, enable clinics, uh, enable um, consumer companies uh, to test the um, efficacy of their interventions, also to test the um, uh, effects of uh, lifestyle changes on humans, because, I mean, we can actually quantify them. We can quantify whether then uh, how old you will be if you will quit smoking or start start smoking. Um, we can um, like ultimately with those tools run clinical trials on uh, on longevity uh, interventions. That will be like the ultimate goal for us. What what will be your ultimate goal to? To to run a clinical trial uh, on the, um, on the, um, on the, on a longevity intervention. I mean, it's not ultimate goal for the company, so to say. The company actually has really big plans. So I, I know it's uh, silly to say probably for a startup, but again, um, what we want to do ultimately, we want to create an ecosystem. And we believe having biomarkers of aging as tools that can track so many things um that would benefit us a lot there's actually something that uh can can build an ecosystem and something that yeah. we can use to build it yeah are you able not able are you yeah i meant able in terms of from a business privacy a confidentiality perspective are you able to share any details of that ecosystem i mean Probably not yet. So we haven't announced that yet, and we are still in the middle of our, I mean, in the middle of closing the deal with with Regent Pacific, so the company that acquired us. So at this point, I don't think we can um, I, I announce all the details. All I can tell that uh, we are right now um, working with our clinic partners and uh, aiming to assign more and more clinics um, to work with. And of course, launching the app. So we really want uh, young guy to be um, big and um, have a lot of users. So uh, you said young.ai and young.ai is your app. I was a little confused because I always knew young.ai as the web URL where you could enter um, blood analytes and get a biological age prediction. And then the other week, uh, the press release and demonstration, uh, suddenly young.ai was an app. Right. Yeah, so those are actually two, two separate things. So we have aging AI. That's a, that's a website where you can enter blood parameters. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, now I got so confused even over the last few years. I totally forgot again. I used to get them backwards. You have <laughs> the URLs young.ai and aging.ai, and it's aging.ai where I entered the blood analytes. Right, but exactly. Did, but young.ai also used to be a website of some kind. Yeah, I mean, it's a website. So it's, I mean, like, it's a web, web, web application. I mean, it's actually system of two. We have a mobile app in development and a web app. So the one that 
web app you can use with your browser, you know, open just as a website, log in there and, you know, enter information and so on. Uh, with the, and the mobile app is something that complements the web app. But yeah, aging AI is still out there. It's functional and it's open. It requires no registration. And some people prefer to use it. But we think, I mean, young AI obviously is way more powerful in terms of uh, data visualization, what you can synchronize uh, with, with it and so on. So the app is, you're calling it young.ai. Could you give a little tour? I shouldn't say tour because people are listeners and not viewers. Right. Can you give a description of the app? Yeah, so Young AI is um, it's a companion app. What we were aiming for is to have something um, that will allow our users uh, to to learn their aging rates on a daily basis and adjust from it, even if, you, if they want to. And that's why we decided uh, that we want to build a mobile app. So there's something in their pockets, on their phones, uh, that they can check from time to time, and uh, the app will, you know, help them to to to, to get younger. And uh, we also have a web app, which obviously is way more powerful than um, mobile app in terms of how it can visualize data, what kind of data types uh, you can upload there, and so on. Uh, but ultimately, it's a system of two, so they both synchronize. If you have an account in one, you automatically have an account in another one. And if you upload the data in on the web, you will see it in your mobile and other way around. And the basic idea behind Young AI, it's, um, it's a system that allows you to upload your data, like your, your photo, or synchronize your Fitbit or Apple iWatch, and then... Um, track your progress over time, see what makes you younger or older, and adjust from it. And in terms of adjustments, uh, we even provide um, some suggestions uh, on your, like, say, like your big points. For example, if you have some issues with your sleep, like irregular sleep patterns, or uh, you sleep too much, or you sleep too little, or you have elevated... Um, heart rate during sleep, uh, suggesting that they probably have um, higher stress levels and so on and so forth, uh, we can actually pick this up and suggest uh, you to pay attention to it and uh, what you can actually do to change it. Um, and the basic idea that uh, from it, uh, we can actually affect uh, aging rates by adjusting those small things in behavior, in lifestyle, uh, probably easy things to do. But still, I would believe that they will uh, create, like, make a, a, a big impact on, on aging rates of individuals. I think that uh, our age is, and the terminology may not be right here, but um, I'm sure you'll get the sentiment, that our age is probably the greatest asset that we have. Because it's a it's a proxy for health, and I would definitely say that health is our greatest asset. And yeah. okay, yeah, <laughs> thanks. And so, what your this app is aiming to do is is to slow the rate of aging, and therefore, what you're saying is protect an asset, protect your greatest asset. Well, ultimately, yes. <laughs> 
yeah, we, we, we want people to live longer and healthier life. And um, the app is aiming to do this, to take control of your aging process, help you to track it, understand what's going on there. And yeah, ultimately protect your, as you said, the, the, the major asset. Yeah. Yeah. So since it's your uh, most precious asset, an app aims to protect it, stroke, improve it, then it's, it's, it's a logical follow-on that there is money in this field. Yeah, for sure. And back in 2015, I could see this, uh, what we'll call this market, without giving lots of words to it, this market emerging. Uh, I thought it would begin sort of 2019. Um, it's been, a okay, I touched delayed by a year. By this year, I definitely see uh, what the beginning of the hockey stick. Um, so, do you? You've been in this long enough. Also, do you also see that this year is a bit is what I'll call a launch year? Yes, I totally agree with you. That's what we see right now, and probably that why it was so easy for us to fundraise because I mean, ultimately we thought, okay, COVID is there. Uh, economical crisis is probably going to hit. I mean, it's already happening. So we thought that, all right, it will be really hard to fundraise. But then, no. Uh, again, because, I mean, we can actually see right now that the market, the longevity market is emerging. So there are players like HLI, um, also other clinics like Calico, companies who do drug discovery and development, like Restore Bio or Unity Biotechnology, all of them, they are creating an ecosystem and there will be more and more companies emerging like that. And I think uh, the main thing that actually enable this is biomarkers of aging because the longevity field has been out there for quite a while and been feeding us promises for quite a while. And there are still a lot of products out there that mainly like snake oils, they do nothing. But now we can actually track effectiveness of, of therapies so now we can actually quantify how uh the, the, the how 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 effective they are in terms of reversing aging maybe maybe not reversing but slowing it down ultimately of course reversing but yeah i think that because of biomarkers of aging uh it's a completely different story now and that's why um the field is is booming yeah so you mentioned a few things there. I think the, the COVID situation is actually going to accelerate the industry rather than delay it because I notice it's almost like the public has discovered um, death and uh, morbidity all of a sudden. And it seems to have put the idea of health protection and aging far more into the public consciousness. Right, totally agree. That's what we see because it's a general disease. So the age, ultimately chronological age, um, it's one of the most important factors of um, of predicting you getting compli- any complications from COVID. And uh, again, the, the the public started to, to pay a lot of attention. It's actually it would be really interesting to see uh, once we will be able to manage COVID and I believe that we will do um, in the next, let's say, couple of years, maybe a year, uh, how the public perception 
will change or how fast it's actually going to back to, to normal in terms of thinking of their own health. I, I I I definitely think that we'll come out the other side uh, with health uh, definitely more at the forefront of of public consciousness. So back in uh, um, sort of 2015, when I had the realization that hey, look, there's a new multi-trillion um, dollar market emerging, and it's a market I want to be involved in because. Uh, healthcare. Uh, well, I'll just jump in the deep end here and give a personal opinion, which is that the greatest danger to your health can be healthcare today, and it's due to um, misaligned incentives and paradigms which are um, <laughs> exceptionally out of date. And so, I wanted to work help towards uh, one, I wanted to be part of this emerging multi-trillion um, industry, but I also wanted to facilitate the paradigm shift. And we can call that at the moment, slowing aging, reversing aging, uh, reducing chronic disease risk, etc. And so I wasn't sure where to study or where to put my attention um, because there's so many areas to it. So I decided the nucleus or the core, uh, the juncture, the best place to place myself would be at the quantification of health, wellness, and, and aging. And so I'm deeply interested in the, the fact that you've, you've chosen the quantification side on deep longevity. And could you introduce uh, aging clocks? Right, so aging clocks... There are those biomarkers of aging that uh, returns uh, return um, age as a number, so pre predicted age, biological age as a number, and there are a number of those that has been proposed um, recently. Uh, it's all started in 2013 with the um, publication of epigenetic clocks. So, I mean, Professor Steve Forward was uh, one of the one of the groups, I mean, he, he, he was the first one to publish, but also there was a, another group that published actually probably like the same time. It's always tricky with those peer-reviewed journals. What was that journals. group? Uh, so there's, a, uh, there's another publication um, that is, uh, the first author is Hanum, and um, it was published almost the same time with, 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 uh, with um, the, the publication that uh, Steve Forward did in, in Genome Biology in 2013. But Steve, of course, was the, the only author there and the, the another publication was for multiple authors. I mean, I can send you the link if you like. Yeah, um, sure, and I'll add it to the show notes at uh, podcast.hyperwellbeing.com. Right. So again, but I mean, Steve, of course, I mean, Steve, Professor Steve Howard, of course, considered to be like a, f a father of uh, the whole field with, with his, his, his first approach. And uh, since then, a lot of those been proposed in transcriptomics, uh, you know, it's um, uh, gene expression data, also in uh, even in telomere length. So there are a number of models been proposed uh, since then. And that was mainly driven by the availability of data. So right now we have a lot of data to, to, 
to 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 predict to to try to design those clocks to predict biologic age. Uh, but then in 2016, uh, we were the, the first one who decided to use a completely different technology to build those clocks. So the one that are are mainly. I mean, the, the one that were, the, the clock, the clocks, the epigenetic clocks that were proposed in 2014, uh, they were built using um, so called shallow machine learning techniques. So, really standard, basic machine learning. While we decided that uh, we can use a superior technology that is, it was at the point quite popular and still really popular, uh, deep learning. So uh, in, in 2014, um, a deep learning based model um, actually won the ImageNet competition. It was a competition in the in, in, in image, um, image recognition field. And the neural networks actually sh uh, show that they are more accurate in predicting and classifying images, rec recognizing them, than uh, human experts trained to do so. So that was a big deal at that time. And we as a company decided, I mean, Images, they are really uh, complex in terms of their um, structure and complex in terms of the analysis, but um, gene expression, you know, omics data in general, biological data is even more complex. So why don't we try to apply uh, those deep neural networks um, by analyzing, uh, to, to analyze the, the, this biomedical data? So we did it and uh, apparently they are also superior to the standard machine learning uh, models um, in, in, in aging clocks. So they're uh, way more accurate. And sometimes uh, they are the only one that can actually apply to, to build a model for, for some of the data types. I mean, mainly, again, for imaging. So there are uh, several models that have been proposed for MRI based clocks uh, also with for uh, x-ray by based clocks so those are on the image base they obviously um working better with uh with, with, with deep neural networks but also omics is uh, apparently uh better analyzed by deep neural networks than just why standard. is it better analyzed because i can um, i can see why on the vision side like if you want to get estimate someone's age based upon uh, photographs, I can definitely see why neural networks would be of benefit. But why would it be of benefit in, uh, in, the, in the plain omics side? Right. So for it's on, on the image side, it, it is because, well, they usually have a high resolution. So if you think of images as a, like um, a collection of uh, numbers, uh, that encoding the, the, the colors um, and so on and so forth, they're really high in resolution. So, and deep neural networks are really good with working with those data types, but one that work with images well, uh, those are a bit of a different architecture. So um, those, they are so-called conversion neural nets, so they can actually reduce dimensionality a lot. And uh, one of the benefits they also have is that uh, they kind of use those filters that kind of walk in through the image so they can pick up um, like features or things that like particular characteristic of the image, regardless of the position of this characteristic on the image. So regardless where your cat is, the neural network can actually recognize its uh, image with a cat. 
so that's why they're so 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 powerful. And for if we think of um, of um, gene expression data, for example, it's also sort of images. So it's a kind of like a snapshot of um, all uh, like of it's it's like it's, it's a snapshot of uh, t total. I mean, net totality of uh, proteins e expressed if we think of uh, mRNA analysis. And um, it's just a snap snapshot of the, of the state because it's a cis the, the, the gene expression is rather dynamic. Yeah, I imagine kind this of huge analog form when, when, when you were talking there. Right, yeah, yeah. So you're kind of like taking it like a, a picture of it uh, at, the, at, at the particular point of time. Again, it's also highly dimensional in terms of um, a number of uh, input parameters you usually analyze uh, starting like analyze 3000 or 12,000 or um, old 88,000 genes in the human genome so and if we think of uh, neural network as powerful tools what they also can do uh, they basically are able to capture really uh, highly non-linear dependencies between between um, like yeah, that's a key. And for the sake of listeners, could you explain what you mean by that? Right. So the um, high high non-linear dependency. Right. So I mean, if we think of um, blood markers, for example, and we analyze the um, albumin levels of. Um, in, in blood uh, over time and trying to uh, capture any dependencies between the chronological age and level albumin uh, in, in, in humans, we will see that it's actually um, kind of declining with age. So there's like a linear trend there and we can express this dependency as a linear equation. It's some yeah, sort of and same with glucose. Yeah, same for glucose. Yeah, glucose tend to increase, cholesterol tend to increase, but again, it's a linear dependency there. And uh, most of the models that have been used, like this shadow or machine learning models, uh, they actually are the ones that are trying to, to capture those linear dependencies, find those coefficients yeah, yes. that actually expressing the uh, kind of converting the input uh, levels of blood parameters to the target level. So it's ultimately like one equation with multiple yes. coefficients. Mm -hmm. And with deep neural networks, it's actually multiple equations and they also um, stack together. And uh, you've, before you, you, you're not like actually converting input parameters directly to, the, to your target as age. Uh, you are doing this in multiple levels and you have multiple transformation before that and um, on, on, on the hidden layers, so so-called hidden layers, you actually like, don't analyze them. You only analyze the one that I mean, see or have access to the one that uh, go on the input and then something that you uh, receive as a target, for example, as an age. And on hidden layers, all, let's say all the magic occurs. So all those um, non-linear non transformations, multiple transformations. And because uh, because of that, deep neural analysis actually can work with really complex data types. Because usually, even if you have those obvious linear relationships between like album level and age, 
Um, it doesn't mean that if you have multiple parameters, albumin, glucose, uh, cholesterol, that you can actually express the dependency in a linear form. It's not that simple. And even for albumin... Not that simple. Yeah, it's not that simple. And even for albumin, um, if someone will give you uh, albumin level over, over, over like a, of someone or even myself, it's not like you can actually guess how the person is. But having a combination of parameters and linear models, uh, that that would, would, would solve the problem. There's so many things I want to ask you there. I really appreciate that. So the first thing that comes to mind is, is no other group taking this deep learning approach? Uh, yeah, there are other groups that do this for other data types, including imaging. But deep learning... Yeah, there's time for imaging, but for aging clocks. Right. I mean, not that we are aware of. of the I'm one really surprised. Is. So uh, it's I, not, yeah. I, I, I'll be honest with you here. I assumed uh, Alex or in silico and now, now deep longevity, my assumption was they were just throwing in the word deep learning as a marketing term. Yeah. Right. So now listening to you, I completely get this is quite, uh, yeah, a very unique approach. And it, it contrasts with uh, the approach of Morgan Levine. Right, yeah. It's also a bit different in terms of how we design clocks. But uh, coming back to your question on deep neural networks, again, I mean, yeah, they are powerful, but there are stepbacks, of course, because uh, you have, let's say, so many equations inside of it. You have so many parameters that you can actually, that you have to fit. In a linear model, you just, you know, uh, try to find the optimal coefficients that will give you best results, like fitting the model. Uh, and you can understand that you get best results if you, for example, introduce some error rates there and kind of penalize the model if it's producing a lot of errors in the response. But mm -hmm. with neural networks, you have so many parameters, it's millions of parameters, not even thousands, and they are really hard to train. It will take time. And they are so hard to train that they actually have to have, let's say, special like computers for that. It's not like you can actually train them on CPU uh, straightforward. You usually use GPU for that, so graphic processing united, units, mm -hmm. uh, the one that actually analyzes images, but they are really, apparently really good in like working with, with matrices of data. Um, and um, because, because of um, GPU, now we can actually train deep neural networks because the whole theory behind deep neural networks and perceptrons been out there for a really long time. So most of those ideas, they came from 80s. Uh, but yeah. only now, because we, we have uh, computer power to train them, uh, we can do that. It's, it's not only only computer power, but also algorithms. Before, it was impossible to train in so many parameters, but now we have a backpropagation, other algorithms that allow us you know, to train them. So a lot of things actually happened um, now 
to, to, to enable us to, to, to apply this um, technology to, to biomedical data analysis. Plus, they are exceptionally data hungry. So if you have not that many samples, um, it's not going to work. And also, um, it's a bit hard to, to find people who, who can do this type of analysis. It's more popular now. And there are degrees right now in machine learning, but it wasn't like that a couple of years ago, even. I remember in 1994 trying to program neural networks. Right. And, and uh, apart from some limited success, maybe some medium success on images, uh, I thought this is just complete rubbish. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah, because the computer power is not, not there, algorithms not there, data not there yet, and yeah, it was it was a rubbish, nothing. I mean, not rubbish, but more like more like a theory. Not, yeah, exactly. Really so I was wondering why we were doing it, and why so so much effort was going into it, and then a number of years ago with machine learning, that seemed just way more uh, exciting and efficacious, and I. Totally, you'd put deep learning uh, to to the back of my mind, and now you mentioned this is a an approach to um, quantification of aging. Exactly, and but and because of that, it's probably hard to find people who are actually trying to do so. Um, and especially, it's hard in, in biomedical field because it's not only you have to know how to train neural networks; you also have to understand the data. Um, how to process it, what kind of issues are there, how you design your experiment in terms of how it's like splitting by even by test train set and so on and so forth. So the multiple things you you have to know to do this. And that's probably why we don't still have that much of competition in the space. But um, even though the, 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 um, the, the accuracy deep neural networks is superior to other models uh other models are still like good enough so for, for some of the companies or some applications they don't prefer not to go this road you know getting people trained highly skilled to do this getting the, the equipment to do this and so on they kind of okay with uh, other approaches and maybe from business point it's also like a, a viable model but we believe that yeah deep neural networks are better and it's something you should invest in if you want to be competitive in, in the field. Yeah, so I'm really interested in this uh, two schools of thought going on here. So with the Morgan Levine stuff, um, well, I used aging.ai, so I could uh, let me, did I get it around the right way? Yes. Yes. <laughs> because I get confused with young.ai. I used aging.ai, and I would go get a cheap blood panel and occasionally fill in analytes and just see what score. And so you're saying that was neural network based, but I think if I remember right, it, the R value was 0.8 on aging.ai. Yes. So for, for it, depending, it depends on the number of parameters you're entering because for 41 based uh, panel, for 41 based uh, blood parameters based clock, we had R of, or close to, to nine, so it's nine something. Uh, which clock is close to an R value of nine? It's uh, 41 parameter based. So Oh, uh, yeah, I, I actually did that once, by the way. I, I went to the blood lab and I took all 
uh, 41. So you have one which is like, I don't know, something like nine or 10 markers, which I tend to do nowadays. And it's the one which is an R value of 0.8. Yeah, I think it's even less. It's uh, IR of 0.76, something like that. Okay. And then Morgan Levine, you know, who had been a postdoc of um, Steve Horvath, in 2018, she published uh, um, PhenoAge, and that was an R of uh, 0.94. Right. And uh, it uses nine circulating uh, biomarkers. And so it's clearly very good. And with the Elysium Health, they're now selling that biological age score and the intervention of nicotinamide riboside from Elysium. And what you're clearly saying is you're taking a direct, so that's a machine learning approach. And what you're saying is you sincerely believe though, that this deep learning approach will yield better results now or in the long term. Right. So, there is a like um, an issue there with accuracy. Again, so there are two like schools thoughts here, two ways of approaching this um, of approaching the design of uh, of uh, AG clock. Uh, one is that uh, you suggest that there are some markers in the body measurable, let's say blood levels or I don't know uh, walking speed rate, whatever. Um, that you can uh, connect to age. But so your input parameters will be some some of the markers in the body you measure and the output will be the biological age. But because you don't know the biological age, so it's something that you can actually know for sure, so there is no ground truth there, uh, you would assume that um, your chronological age should be close to your biological age. And that's what we assume in, in healthy individuals. I mean, that's the reason why we have mortality tables. Uh, that's the reason why we can um, predict the lifespan right now for, for, for healthy individuals and so on and so forth. And uh, you design those models by minimizing the error between the age you predict with the model with the input parameters given and the chronological age of healthy individuals. Of course, those models are never perfect. Even though you try to minimize the error, there's still some, there is an error rate still, and you uh, see some variation. And you believe that it would assume that this uh, natural variation, because again, even though we can predict lifespan, uh, still, Oh, different humans, they have different lifespans, different disease incidents, and so on and so forth. And uh, another approach would be to include the chronological age as one of the parameters and assume that your uh, biological age is some kind of adjustment to your chronological age. Again, so you would assume that in your equation, uh, you not only have um, uh, blood parameters or um, some other markers is input. You also have chronological age. But what you will put on the other side is your target. Because you don't have a biological age. It's um, it's an unknown ground truth. You have to put something there. So uh, 
so some of the models actually put the chronological age at because you again making the assumption that the biological age of healthy individuals is kind of close to the chronological age. Mm -hmm. uh, you would assume there still be variation. That's why model is never perfect. Um, so you go for it. But it like, but if you think of this from the machine learning perspective, it's not going to work because you have your chronological age is input and you have it as output. And the perfect model will just minimize any coefficients before other markers and equalize the chronological age to chronological age, regardless uh -huh. of what you have out there. Uh -huh. So the training there is just not obvious. How, when will you start? Because, I mean, you can start from, from a model that is not really good in predicting, and the model will try to go in the direction uh, by minimizing the error and so adjusting the coefficients. And of course, uh, you can stop at some point, not allowing it to be the perfect model, but ultimately it will still go there. So the, this, the, 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 the ore fitting is just out there because again, you just equalize chronological age to chronological age. Uh -huh. And yeah. that's why we're not in favor of those approaches because it's impossible to, to understand wh wh when you will start. So now um, those groups that still kind of use this chronological age as input parameters, or some adjustment that they use it there. Uh, I mean, you, you can call it a trick, but uh, of course it's a val uh, valid assumption that it's a sort of a biological age is sort of like a modification of chronological age, some adjustment to it, but still it's you can call it a trick because it's way easier, of course, to predict age if you have chronological age. Yeah, so it's a covariate yeah, chronological co age. Exactly, and then they kind of trying to introduce mortality uh, as one of the things that you can predict so you're not predicting chronological age directly, but you kind of predict mortality. And um, that's how the, 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 the Green Mage, for example, works now. So, yeah, it's not St so Steve Horvath. Exactly. Was, that, was that 2018 also? Uh, yes, yes, yes. It was 2018. But what did he call the mortality part? Was that a time to live or time to death? or Yeah, it was something like, yeah. Yes, time, time, to, time to death, I think, yeah. Quite, quite a name, huh? Of Grimage, time <laughs> to death. I mean, Steve is really, is rather good at uh, marketing. I mean, you should agree on that. Everyone knows Grimage. The hacker right community loved that for sure. And then, but you still have a problem with with chronological age. You still have it, and it's from machine learning point of view, it's you really don't know where where to where to stop because when you you train a model it's still going going in um you still have iterations and trying to minimize our coefficients you know uh to, to optimize Sounds a lot of fun <laughs> for sure uh it's actually i mean i, I love it because it's allow you to to think if we are not if we can like a bit of a side topic. If we compare like um, red lab biologists who work with our, I don't know, in a molecular lab doing some uh, experiments and, you know, conducting some reactions and so on, uh, they still ha at least have time to think because usually those reactions are time consuming. So PCRs, for example, is running like uh, one and a half hour time and you will, you can actually spend the whole day preparing the data for it, like extracting DNA and so on. But for now, for 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 computation biologists or like computer scientists, you can actually get the results of your experiments in seconds, and it's rather frustrating. You really don't have time to think. 
about science and so on. So for neural networks, it's a bit different because again, you can spend the whole day training them, but it doesn't require your attention. But at the time, you're kind of in the same position as a bad lab biologist, you know, to think, to 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 make hypotheses, to read literature, and so on. So it's a good thing. <laughs> or uh, sit on social media, right? <laughs> yeah, you can do this too. But <laughs> you're making it sound like you're always uh, focused on on work. It reminds me. I laughed at your. I looked today. I looked at your Twitter bio, and yeah. it's geneticist by training, bioinformatician by trade. So I, I like that humor. <laughs> right. I'm not using Twitter much, but yeah. This the grim age and the time to live talk. You'd mentioned longevity clinics as a potential uh, customer of deep longevity. I guess that would be through the human longevity partnership, but maybe not necessarily. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how you're going to structure it. But also life insurance must be a big market. Yeah, we, we, I mean, we hope so. Because if we think of this from uh, like a perspective of um, having people uh, living longer, not getting any disease, that should ultimately benefit both, both sides because then, I mean, um, life insurance companies are going to pay any incidents and then a human, I mean, humans are going to live longer and happier. And not I'd pay it. more monthly subscriptions. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> or maybe less because, you know, I think uh, the proper way to design it is actually allow people who are carrying on themselves to pay less. It's only fair because they have lower mortality rates and so on. People try to achieve that with uh, crypto coins, <laughs> yeah. you know, like making health coins and you earn more coins based upon your living, but it was very uh, poorly implemented. Right. I, yeah, there is always a great side, great, great side of it. So it's great side of it. So it's a bit hard to um, to control properly. A lot of things can go wrong. Yeah, again, if you implement this poorly. And but if if we think of um, of, uh, of how the life insurance should approach is uh, is that um, it's more like of a, of a marketing tool for them as well, because when you ultimately start learning about your risks, and that's it was a study uh, run by Swiss Re um, on the on the on genetic testing, so they showed that. If, uh, after uh, doing the genetic tests, people are more prone to purchasing life insurance, even though, it, regardless of them actually. So it's like out, an onboarding solution. Exactly. Yeah. So regardless of them finding out if they any if they have any sort of conflict uh, chances of or increased risk of any um, diseases, they're still willing um, to purchase um, life insurance like uh, three times more. And um, that's uh, ultimately a good thing for, 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 for life insurance companies. Yeah, plus they have a connection with your personal data and they can provide dashboards, even if it's white-labeled. Dashboards have been white-labeled to them. And it's nice to have a dashboard with a product now. <laughs> True. And there is, another, uh, there is a company called Usurance. Uh, yeah, I'm aware of them. Yeah, right. They use um, epigenetic data to 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 actually calculate your premium I mean, talking of data i might sorry did i cut you off there polina 
I was about to ask, do you know what, how they were, how well they are doing? If you know them, oh, I'm just aware of them. Okay. I'm not, I, I don't, I don't know anything more. There's a couple others actually, but I, I, I also know that that uh, market is also set to take off over the coming years, mm-hmm. and so I, I see a lot of stars lining up. But talking of data. With Morgan Levine's Fino Edge, the 2018 uh, paper, and uh, given the uh, you know the nine uh, analytes, mm-hmm. and also as you know, it's a composite marker, so there's um, the methylation also getting measured. If you want, they used NHANES three data for training their model. Uh, where I haven't heard any mention of what data sets. Uh, have been used by Deep Longevity and uh, or Aging.ai? Uh, we used the same data set for validation, but our, our main source of, of data is our collaboration with our universities and clinics. And so we have like a really uh, comprehensive internal database uh, that uh, we actually um, augmented also. Uh, because now what we were trying to do is to work with as many markers as possible, but also with as little as possible. Because when you are start working in the consumer space, you realize that I mean there are not that many people who are willing to purchase I don't know thousand dollar blood panel <laughs> once a year even um, to do the testing and to analyze all those uh, blood parameters. And um, to do this properly, uh, we kind of artificially um, augmented the data and created a lot of artificial samples with with missing values. So now we can work with the missing values as well. And that helped us work with as little blood parameters as possible. And that's why um, for the previous versions of um, Aging AI, we had those three panels. But now for young AI, we don't have a panel because young AI is able to work with um, a different set of parameters. If I look at uh, aging.ai at the moment, well, hang on. If I look at um, Pheno Edge, uh, it's nine marker, blood markers. You've got the eight really cheap analytes, uh, albumin, creatinine, Glucose, you've got the mean corpsula, volume and MCV, the red blood cell distribution, RDW, your alkaline phosphatase, white blood cells, and your, your C-reactive protein. If I jump over now to aging.ai and I click the one that seems to require the least, uh, let, let, let's have a look here. Um, yeah, 19 input markers. They're super cheap for me to get here and fill out. Yeah, so you've got a few, you've got extras on top of this nine, like potassium and uh, your uh, your calcium. Strange that calcium is there. Um, first question: Has this got you interested in blood biochemistry? Oh yeah, for sure. Because what now we are like having a model that can predict age based on the blood biochemistry levels or uh, cell counts. Uh, we can actually um, design a model that can suggest what the optimal levels are for this particular individual to to get younger. And for this, of course, you need to know what's going on there. Uh, 
what kind of interventions um, or conditions impact uh, those parameters or those blood parameters or levels and um, whether there are any ways of changing them. I find it fascinating because when I first came into what again I'll call this industry in quotes and I spoke with many physicians first of all the attitude was you never measure something unless you know you can take action on it so right. it was a very conservative paradigm when it, it, it comes to data but then the I what you know I have to watch what I say here but I definitely uh, dealt with uh, physicians at a very close level for a number of years and they showed me what they were doing and they were just looking up reference ranges and in, in a pathology um, flow chart if it's this and it was one number pretty much applied to everybody uh, the same numbers it was it was just a lookup for pathology um, diagnostics and but then I began doing my own experiments in the labs on myself for years and it was like damn I can change one value and get increase my lifespan by potentially 10 years let's not look at this as a disease diagnostic bucket uh, of putting you in a disease diagnostic bucket, but let's look how I can alter these values with supplements, with food and so forth, and actually see predicted lower um, morbidity, increased longevity and so forth. So I just got started getting super excited about uh, blood chemistry. And so maybe you'd be so kind as just to say a few words about the markers used in aging.ai and the blood chemistry front. Maybe uh, let a listener know why why is albumin there or bilirubin or uh, you know just a little bit about blood chemistry if you could uh, Polina. Right so for for blood chemistry when we were designing the set of markers that we were, we were planning to use um, we basically chosen the one that were the most common one and the reason for that because we want want the the approach to be really massive, so it has to be really cheap. By most common, do you mean that it's been measured for decades and in scientific literature and super cheap because every lab has them? Exactly, and it's measured like uh, a, a part of like a regular testing in most of the hospitals all over the world. So it's like a universal markers that measure everywhere, like glucose. Uh, most of our uh, most of us we already have it and actually multiple uh, yeah, can i just add a side time. note in there with you the do you think the blood chemistry standard blood chemistry the super cheap stuff that gets measured everywhere is untapped in terms of intelligence uh do you mean that uh it's good enough or the the people will only look at one or two values but once you start feeding these super cheap markers into machines, uh, that is that has not been uh, uh, tapped yet. Then what you can derive out of those markers by using machines. Yeah, I think that, Yeah, I was saying that it, 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 that's exactly why we are focusing on optimal uh, blood ranges rather than reference ranges, because as you correctly said that. Reference ranges are designed to detect any pathologies, uh, like really, really like extreme conditions. So in some cases, uh, it could be, I mean, not too late to reverse, but still damage is there. And, you know, it's a sign of something really bad coming. 
Of course, it's up to a doctor to do any di- di- diagnostic work based on um, blood values, but still, um, it's something really like let's say unhealthy. But uh, if you think of it, uh, there is also like an optimal range, as you again correctly said, um, that you can reach with your blood markers uh, to get uh, even healthier uh, or to live longer. And when um, someone is looking at data, what they usually do, they tend to pick up one or two blood parameters that are, let's say, abnormal. They are outside of the reference range. Uh, They will be the one that will be highlighted. Two standard deviations. Exactly. They will be the one that will be highlighted by the lab test providers. They're the one that um, doctors will focus on. And I think... Um, that is uh, that's a shame. We, we we also have others, and you have to analyze them. And um, also analyzing the trend in your blood markets that can be also really 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 powerful. Because even though so, how has to become the case that we end up with optimization clinics, or we'll call them longevity clinics, or both. And so I got excited when I saw Deep Longevity launch because we need this quantification to power the this industry transition so we can start having money pour into increased age um, and uh, optimized health instead of always reactively waiting on people to get sick and putting them in a disease bucket through quantification. Exactly, yeah. That, that's, the, that's the whole idea. And I, I see the time running out, so I'm getting in a little bit of a panic here. That there's just a, a couple more questions that I wanted to throw at you. So traditionally, and we're talking the last five years or so, maybe since Steve's paper in 2013, biological age has been a single number. But in the last couple of years, it seems that biological age is splitting out to subsystems. So you'll have a heart health, a brain health, uh, uh, and so forth. And so you, our deep longevity offer multiple aging clocks. Um, so I guess you plan uh, multiple uh, biological age measurements of maybe of different bodily subsystems and not just one complete number. Do you want, do you want to say anything there? Yeah, exactly. So that's correct. We don't believe there is a one universal marker that can be used um, for completely different tissues, organs, and systems in the body. Um, so that's why we are focused on a really broad range of, of them, uh, starting from really simple blood tests or in like photos um, uh, of, of, of um, like, fa- like facial images and going to um, like metabolomics and uh, micro microbiome data and so on so it's really hardcore omics data and uh, of course the ultimate goal is to you know find the the, the fastest fastest ticking clock in your body the the, the the one that is actually going to let's say is going to i mean not fail you first but find the, the one that is uh, accelerated and um Try to 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 tweak it. Yeah, so someone could have um, a heart age, which is well in excess of their chronological age. 
Exactly. If you could get access to that tissue or, or a measure. Um, we all seem to have a preponderance towards a certain type of accelerated aging. I think it was uh, agiotypes. Uh, and now I wish I had more caffeine because it slips my mind. Michael Snyder. I don't know if yeah. you've heard of agiotypes. Oh, you, you, have, you have heard of that. And so I, you give a nice tour to the media. I don't know. It was like 10 days ago, something like that, um, where you unveiled the app. And the app could begin super cheap, the Young.ai app, and it could take your biological age just taking a selfie. Yeah, the whole, that's the whole idea. But that's the only way for us to make it massive. I mean, like we both believe that in, in quantification and the rigorous analysis of data and the con, like continuous monitoring, but most of the people, they don't. And... Um, I guess it would be like a really tedious task for us to enroll a lot of people uh, with the young AI. But ultimately, that's what we want to do. We want to be like really popular with uh, millions of users. And uh, those millions of users then will pay attention to, to the... Um, to the aging field, to the, to the, the longevity biotechnology. It's quite clever to let people do a biological age test using a selfie. Obviously, the accuracy doesn't meet blood-based and so forth, but uh, because it draws people in at no cost. Exactly, yeah. And then they can upgrade to different levels, and I guess money, the more you spend, the more you tend to get an accurate score, I, I would say, which brings me on to one of the last couple of questions is, I think it seemed to me, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that you have a preference towards transcriptonomic and proteonomic aging clocks. Right, because we believe they are the, mo the most um, actionable one, the one that you can actually target with, with uh, interventions. Because for oh. even for epigenetics, it's a bit harder to, 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 to change, to adjust. Yeah, because you, on the epigenetic side, you don't know if it takes six months or two years to um, have an effect on histones and so forth. Right, unless it's something that directly affects uh, the, the levels of methylation, but then it can have a lot of side effects because, I mean, those regulations, they, I mean, control all the process in the body. Um, they are specific in some way, but also really general. So if you change... Um, epigenetic profiles you can actually have potentially a lot of side effects because of that because you're again effects yeah it's kind of complicated time. because some of those epigenetic changes are a sign of healthy aging right exactly so that's quite a lot to get your mind around and anything on the epigenetic front you don't know if it's a cause of aging or if it's like a, a passenger of aging but i don't know about when the transcriptonomic um, yeah, for, for proteomic front. Yeah, you would assume that it's. I mean, because it's different, so you can be more specific here, uh, especially if you think of, of certain pathways that you're trying to intervene with, uh, certain signaling pathways that control. Uh, they can be also again like a master pathway that control multiple processes, but also they can be specific, and um, you already kind of know what kind of drugs um, target those, like mTOR, like the rapamycin, uh, targeting mTOR pathway. Uh, again, it also has some broad effects there, and depending on what kind of subunit of mTOR protein 
it's target inhibiting, but still, so it 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 at least it's let's say more controllable in a way. So it's more like surgical intervention there when you when you when you're thinking of pathways because epigenetic is ultimately on top of it, and the higher you get in let's say in a hierarchy of uh, regulatory signaling. Uh, the broader effect you will have if you intervene on top rather than if you intervene on one of one of the branches that are really specific in their function in, in, in the body. And um, both transeptome and protome, those are those snapshots that actually reflect the state of those uh, signal and networks. And that's mm-hmm. why we believe they're more uh, powerful, are more actionable in in terms of um, biological age tracking. Of course, they should be less accurate, but then uh, there's always like a dying side of it. As you said, we really don't know whether then if we're going to make an intervention on a genetic level, when we're going to see an effect. And the animal experiments suggest that, well, um, it can be rather long before you see any signs on the acceleration of the aging rate. So it was a really nice study from um, Vadim Gladyshev's lab from Harvard. What they did, they measured um, aging rates based on methylation in, in mice, and uh, they did it for uh, for mice, uh, like for some of the um, dwarf mutants that are known to have extended lifespan, but also for mice on color restriction. And we know that color restriction extends mice lifespan up to 40%, depending on the strain, but still it's something mm-hmm. that works. So, and um, what we show that you actually have to put them on one year at least of color restriction before you see an effect on their um, mutilation-based predictive biological mm-hmm. age. So it's one third of our life. It's not something that we can really easily translate into human practice if you think of it. And uh, that's why it's a bit tricky with the ventilation. So it's like, uh, yes, you can predict age accurately, but then first, why do you need to predict chronological age so accurately? Because you already have kind of, you already have it, you mm-hmm. have a passport, you know it. And also because it's, you can predict age so accurately because it's rather stable. And so it's harder to, um, to, to reverse it, harder to change it. It'd be nice one day that when you, for example, move location, you can see whether that move to a new city or country um, accelerates or decelerates your aging. For example, air pollution uh, accelerates right. your aging. Mm-hmm. It'd be nice to see that, you know, a kind of like a kind of Google Maps overlay. Or, you know... In 2015, when I said this, people laughed or kind of gave me a funny look. Yeah, I said, I said, when it comes to dating, the future of dating, well, I want to see their time to death. I want to see the other part if I'm planning long term. I want to see their morbidity predictions. Don't you think that that will become a normal part of social interaction and and life, just like blood pressure is? Right, <laughs> right. Um, it could be. I think, but we do that the moment when we look at people. That's why we yeah, like exactly, exactly. skin. Exactly, and like evolutionarily, we probably predispose to picking partners that are going to have um, the, 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 the 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 same lifespan um, to one that we are going to have. Because there was a really nice study. Um, I think it was 
run by Ancestry, you know, this uh, the, the company. Yes, I do. Exactly. Uh, so what they did, they analyzed uh, like uh, thousands of ge genomes uh, with, 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 with the connection to the, the, to the life expectancy. And they showed that regardless of the household situation, um, humans attempt to pick up partners that are going to have uh, the same life life expectancy. That kind they of surprise. Have. I thought you would have picked a partner who's got maximum life expectancy. Right, but it's also maximum to you. So, I mean, no, not maximum, like, and you will have a short lifespan. Now it's like close to the one that you will have. And it's really interesting. But uh, I wonder how that also works when, say, the man is 20 years older than the woman. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is uh, known to, to, to make men live longer. Yeah. Oh, that is good news. Yeah, because you're swapping plasma. We start talking about blood plasma exchanges next. Hey, by the way, that, that would be a really good intervention to test is the plasma exchanges with youthful blood. Yeah, but it's a bit tricky to test because here it's a bit harder to separate the effect on blood markers from the actual effect yeah. on the acceleration of aging rates. So probably there you actually need to go for other markers, uh, not blood-based, something, I don't know, skin-based, um, muscle tissue-based, um, and so on. Because, yeah, again, you're kind of messing up a lot of things there, changing a lot of um, levels of a lot of blood analytes and, you know, like concentration of blood. I've been very lucky and I've had some yeah, world-leading scientists uh, give me input. And they have definitely steered my mind towards focusing on three areas uh, for, quote, best clocks going forwards. And it is transcriptonomic, proteinomic, but also glycomic, which is why I had glyconage uh, on an earlier podcast. But there's only two labs doing high-throughput glycomics, as far as I right. understand. So that's an exciting area also is glycobiology, which I was completely unaware of until recently. Have you looked at any glycobiology? I mean, I was completely 100% unaware of it. Yeah, I mean, of course, we, we know that like uh, the, 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 the advanced duplication products, they increase with, with age. Their levels increase with age. Uh, and for sure, it's something you should uh, be aware of and it's something you expect to be reflective of uh, someone chronological and also biological age. But then, as you correctly said, there are not that many labs who, who can analysis. And that's actually the downside of our approach. We have to have a lot of data. Plus, we want to be like really massive now. And even with, with, with transeptomal proton, it's tricky. So right now we're more. Yeah, I, I wondered when where you were getting your data for the. Yeah, I mean, I mean we, we, we're going to, but we have to find providers who will do the analysis for us because we are ultimately dry lab, so we don't do any wet okay. experiments, and uh, that's why we partner with clinics. Um, and uh, in the end, we we aim to extend the panel. And plus, we believe that uh, it will be the way for us to democratize it. So we're going to have something really massive that will allow us then to have uh, certain types of clock profile, only limited number of individuals who are like really interested in, in, in profiling them and going doing like this, such a deep dive. But then 
uh, it will help us to make the technology cheaper so we can bring it to the, the broader audience. It's going to be an exciting uh, next 10 years. For sure. Uh, so I'm super excited by it. I better finish off. I feel a touch guilty. I maybe should feel a lot guilty because I've overran the promised time with you. So I'll finish off just asking about, uh, do you see the rise of longevity clinics? And, you know, and also tied to that, age, slowing aging, reversing aging has been something that's been promised for, well, I think I would definitely say the last 15 years has definitely been quite a bit of amplitude to those promises. Uh, but what I've gathered looking at your materials is that you actually believe that this is coming to fruition now, something that's not just a promise or a, a dream. And I think that would be a good area to close out on. Right. Yeah, no, no, I totally agree with you. So I believe there is an emerging trend there. There are uh, several clinics um, out there who are actually already using uh, aging clocks in their care. Uh, of course, they have to be like really cautious with that, but uh, it's more like a research tool at the point uh, in terms of like how mature the technology is, but they're still using it. And we believe that, I mean, that's, that's amazing. That's, that's, that's great. And um, it's not only great in terms of that now we can actually quantify something, but I believe it also from a patient perspective, uh, it's a really important um, outcome because uh, you can put um, like patients on interventions, but unless they see any effects, they kind of will disappoint uh, in that and then lose interest and then you kind of, they will never follow up on the treatment, on their appointments, and so on. And for some of the interventions, it could be a really long time before you will actually feel the effect. And therefore, having something that can actually quantify the effect could help a lot, I think, from, from like a behavioral point of view. If you have some, like, a number. Uh, that yeah, people, you, people's behavior changes based on a number. You know, exactly. somebody measures their weight every day, tends to lose weight. Yeah, exactly. So we believe it will be the same for the aging clocks. So there will be I, I would agree. One interesting area in the medical side is I highly predict that if people start measuring their biological age accurately and often, I think that they will, if those who are on medication, I think they will find many of the medications actually accelerate your biological age. Right. So that will be an interesting interplay in medicine. That's true. That, that, that's true. Some of the cancer drugs, they actually accelerate the cellular senescence. So, and, so, sorry, Polina. No, I was just about to say uh, some of the, my parasite words or parasite phrases I'm using. <laughs> so, no. Okay, and... Uh, you know, it's it's a little bit unclear to me where measurement of biological age ends and health diagnostics begin. The two are quite overlapping, particularly when you look at molecular health like QBio. Right, but again, that's a tricky question. We have to have um, doctors aligned with us, and there are a limited number of 
for physicians who actually know the value of biological age. And uh, that will be a long journey before it will be like an everyday care and before we can actually um, have it in place. But we hope that uh, we can help to accelerate with those clinics who already are um, integrating those uh, tools in their care. And they will be the one who will actually change the industry. I agree. And money is going to flow into those clinics. You and I can guarantee it and some decent money and the money will be increasing. And I think as money flows in, more and more clinics will take take on such tools. True. When they see the popularity, when they see how people react. Yeah. And, and as we said at the beginning, the COVID situation will accelerate that. Hey, uh, Polina, sorry for overrunning the time with you. And is there anything else you would like to say or give any URLs to where people can find out more information? Is there anything you'd like to say to close off? Right. Uh, so I guess, I mean, I, I, I thank you first for, for really like a great discussion. So it was a really vivid, vivid discussion and uh, great questions. So I enjoyed it a lot. Um, in terms of uh, information, uh, they can always go to our website, um, deeplongevity.com, and then we have uh, a lot of materials there because as a company, we try to publish as much as possible, and um, we have our publications there, uh, some explainers, so they can go there and learn about more about the app, the Young AI app. We're going to launch Young AI soon. And so, um, this is uh, the beginning of uh, October. Do you have any idea when the Young.ai app will be an app store, the app that lets you test your biological age by taking a photo and by entering more uh, bloods and so on, if, if you wish to do that? Right. So, Apple is a bit tricky, so we have no control of it. <laughs> but so, it could be any day now. We are on the go. I mean, we are in 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 in, um, in review, and um, yeah, so it could be any day now. But we don't have exact date, I'm afraid. Well, it's greatly appreciated. Uh, viva la revolution! <laughs> yes. Hey, thank you so much, Paulina. Thank you. For more information, please see hyperwellbeing.com or follow Twitter at hyperwellbeing.